Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to begin just with two verses, verses 16 through 17. And so I would invite you to read this together with me from the board aloud. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the amazing gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, there is no powerful thing that can take the place of the simple proclamation of the word. There is no arrangement of instruments. There is no uh, technical things we can do. But Lord, only the foolishness of the message preached is the power that you give us from on high. For even your weakness is more powerful than men. And even your foolishness is wiser than the wise. Father, we thank you for your love and your care and concern for us that you have sent your one and only, only begotten son to come and live amongst us to earn the righteousness that we could never earn and then to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. Lord, I thank you that on the third day he rose again, proving once and for all that the price he paid on the cross was enough and to give us new life in him. And I pray that for every person here this morning that 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 message, that power, that Savior is their own. And if there's one here that isn't, Lord, I pray today, especially today, that they would come to know you as their one and only Savior, for salvation is of the Lord. We pray that you would take my feeble words, my feeble attempts to do your word justice and you would superimpose them with your glorious might to open, to open closed ears, to open blind eyes, to raise dead souls to everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And then may we take that outside of these walls to those to whom we have committed and even more so. It is in your name that we pray, amen. Man, you may be seated, and I would invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter one. While you're turning there, I, I remember the, the first time, does anybody remember the first time that you got to lead someone to Christ? Do you remember that? You remember what an amazing joy that it was to, to do that. I remember my first time. 
I was, uh, it was at a youth rally in Jefferson County out toward Pine Bluff where I grew up and I was uh, a student leader. And so at the end of the youth rally, uh, I was one of the ones who was supposed to come up to the front and I was really what today we would refer to as a, as a counselor, uh, uh, an, an a altar counselor, if you will, or something like that. And I never will forget a, a student, a young student came up and he came to me after the worship rally and he said, I wanna know how I can know Jesus, how I can be saved. And, and I thought, all right, this is my chance. And, and then I just kind of totally drew a blank and I didn't really know where to begin. I didn't know what to say. And the next thing I knew, this came out of my mouth. When God created Adam, and about 70 verses later of just as I am, the, the young kid made a profession of faith. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure if it was a genuine confession of faith or if that boy would have said anything just to get away from me. But uh, afterwards, I, uh, after that very, very long conversation, my, my youth pastor kind of pulled me over and he said, you know, Randy, you really, you really don't need to give them the whole barrel you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to pour the whole barrel over them. All you gotta do is just kinda tell them some basic things that they need to know. And that's a good question, isn't it? Is, is what are those basic things that someone needs to know in order to be genuinely saved? And more to the point for us, because I trust that most of us in this room know Christ as our savior. That's why you're here this morning to worship. That's why the music has the impact it does. That's why the preaching of the word is as attractive as it is is because we all know, most of us know Christ as our savior, but from the standpoint of us being able to faithfully take the gospel out of these four walls and into our community, that's a very good question, isn't it? Is, is how much do we need to be able to convince? How much do we need to make sure they understand so that we will be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the essentials of the gospel, if you will. First of all, let me tell you, I'm not a big fan of that question. I don't like that question very much because it tends to, often it kind of implies a, a strive to meet the minimum kind of mentality. Um, and, and you tend to kind of get two answers. Number one, when I was in Bible college, I was told by one of my professors that under no circumstances should you ever share the gospel with someone in a way that it would take over seven minutes long. No conversations over seven minutes allowed. And that's actually pretty long compared to today's standards. Uh, I hear people today who advertise and teach methods that should take no longer than one minute to share the gospel with someone. Some will say no longer than three minutes, et cetera. And so that's one, that's, that's, that's one side of it. And the other side, others will say, no, if you have not taken at least an hour to share the gospel with someone, then you have reduced the gospel to nothing more than a sales pitch. That you're trying to just get it quick out there and try to make converts as quick as you can. I think they're right to be concerned. I mean, come on, one minute? One minute, three minutes, I mean, come on. I mean, there is no way you can convince someone of the truths of Christianity in under one minute. There's, there's just no way. 
There's no way you can convince someone of the truths of Christianity in under three minutes or, or, even, or even that. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I'm not a big, I, I just don't believe that. But on the other hand, what if you don't have an hour? In fact, what if all you have is one minute with this person? What if all you have is seven minutes or three minutes with this person? then what are the essential truths that we need to focus in on? If What are you going to say in less than 15 minutes, seven minutes, or however much it is, that a person really needs to know? Is it the ins and outs of creationism versus evolution? Do they need to agree with that? Do they need to have a, a pre-tribulational understanding of the rapture? Do they need to understand the doctrine of election and all the ins and outs of that? One group says we need to get the minimum amount of truth to the maximum amount of people as possible. Another group says, no, we need to focus the maximum amount of truth to, to a minimum amount of people, and that will be the most effective. But I think Paul and the apostles would call that a false choice. I think they would. In fact, I like how J.I. Packer and, and Paul Met, or Will Metzger puts it. They say that the goal of the preaching of the apostles was to get the maximum amount of, pe- amount of truth into the a maximum amount of people as possible. And throughout the book of Acts, we see Paul and the apostles teaching, reasoning, laboring diligently day and night so as to communicate as much truth as they can to every non-believer that they can. But as we look at their preaching throughout the book of Acts, and as we look at their, really their writings in the epistles, we do start to see a few themes that kind of push themselves forward. We do start to see that there are three or four kind of essentials that you, you start to see it makes it, at least in some aspect, and every time that we have one of their recorded sermons. And I think from that, we can say that if we only have a minute, if we only have three minutes, if we only have 15 minutes or whatever the case may be, there are four essential truths that we must convince unbelievers of in the time that we're given. I'm not gonna tell you that in order to be faithful to the gospel, you must do it in a certain time frame. I I don't think the scriptures teach that. But I will say, however much time you have, you should labor diligently and persuade them and try to convince them of, four, of these four central essential truths of the gospel that I think push themselves out into center focus in the preaching of the apostles and in their teaching. And so as we look at these, we're going to kind of follow, we're going to trace out Paul's argument, and we're going to see these in the book of Romans. We're not going to, we're not going to uh, look at it verse by verse. We certainly don't have the time to do that. But we are just going to kind of look at these four themes that we find from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4, and we're going to see how Paul kind of works these out. And, and as you are become aware of these, you will start to see these in other places as well. And so we must convince unbelievers of four essential truths, beginning, number one, with the essential truth that we must convince them of the truth about God. We must convince them of the truth about God. You know, it's strange that all of these 
cutting edge gospel programs, all of these things where they claim that they have their thumb on the pulse of, of culture today and, and they'll sell it to the church and say, if you, if you use our gospel presentation, if you use our gospel outline, if you use our program, you will revolutionize your church and, and you will really be able to reach out to the culture. You know what's strange, you know, and some of them are, you know, the one minute method and the three minute method and all that stuff. You know, one thing I find really strange about all these cutting edge programs is that when it comes to this, they are oddly out of date, oddly out of date. And here's what I mean by that is that, beloved, there was a time when you could start with the assumption in our culture that the person you are talking to has a basically Judeo-Christian understanding of who God is. Basically, now, not to say that there's not problems with it, you know, the, 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 the big grandpa upstairs, you know, or the, 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 with the white long beard or Morgan Freeman, whatever the case may be. Not to say that there's not problems with it, but there was a basic understanding of Judeo-Christian mentality of who God is. That was a safe assumption at one point. That is not a safe assumption today. It's really not. There are all kinds of ideas out there about who God is, and quite frankly, some of them are rather bizarre. You know, we are all part of God. We are all God. I'm my own God. In fact, you'll, you'll find books in the self-help section that address men and women as gods and, and goddesses and, and stuff like that. All kinds of, of different ideas. Some people will say that love is my God and, and, and those kinds of things. We simply cannot assume that anymore. And what I have found about a lot of these gospel presentations is that they start off with those assumptions. Uh, when, we were, uh, when we were planning a church in Denver, we, we went to the latest and greatest evangelistic method. And one of the, it started off with that you need forgiveness. And the thing is, you look at that and you say, well, forgiveness from what? Forgiveness from who? Who needs to forgive me? It assumes that they know who God is. They assume they understand what sin is. They, they assume all of this, all in that first, and that was the first part of the gospel outline. Those assumptions are just not there. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. You know what an unbeliever thinks when he hears that? Well, that's great. I love me too and I have a wonderful plan for my life. So me and God, we're on the same page, right? And so... A lot of these assumptions are built in to these kinds of things. And so we need to help people today understand who the biblical God, who the one true God is. And there's a couple of things that'll help them do that. Number one, they need to understand that God is the creator. Look in Romans 1 in verse, uh, in verse 20. It says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly see, perceived, watch this, for ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They need to understand that God has made the world, the universe and everything in it. He is the creator. Now, let me qualify this. This is not the place to get into a creation versus evolution debate. That's a good debate to be had, but I don't think this is the place to do that. 
But they do need to understand that God is the creator. And what is amazing about this is that the more we understand about the amazing complexity of life, the astonishing ingenuity, the incredible workings of how just about everything in this universe works, the more it is undeniable that someone must be behind it that someone must have started it all, that there must be some intelligent design to everything that we see. And, and, and this is just my experience, but you really don't get a lot of pushback on this point. Uh, now, you will sometimes. I'd say about, I'd say about 60 to 70% of the time, most people are going to concede this point. And so you're really not gonna get a lot of pushback, even from lost people. Because as they see the amazing complexity of life, they come to understand that there's no way that this can be just a cosmic accident. There's no way that someone is not behind this. But what you will get a lot of pushback on is the second thing they must understand about God, and that is this, that he is holy that God is holy. Everyone's opinion about God is that he is good, he is loving, he is fair, and of course he is all of those things. But most people will define those things by their own desires, by their own wishes, by their own worldviews. They will decide what it means for God to be good by their own plans and values. But look at verse 17 in Romans. It says, for in it, the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, God's own righteousness is what is at stake here. That is what they need to understand. And that's why we say they need to understand that God is holy that in the gospel, his righteous nature is revealed. And we even see that on in Romans chapter one, verse 18, where he says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by the, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What it, this is what is so important to the gospel is that God is holy, he is complete and absolute moral and righteous perfection. And there is no ounce of imperfection or sin in him whatsoever. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Beloved, if you have the light turned on in a room, you cannot have darkness. You just can't. They are mutually exclusive. And therefore, God is absolutely holy, 100% moral and righteous perfection. He is creator and he is holy. And even though most people will concede that God is creator and some will even admit that he is holy, they have not thought through those implications. Because, beloved, admitting God created us has some implications, doesn't it? It does. The biggest one is this. If God created me, then he has patent rights over me. If God created me, then that means that I do not have a right to live and do whatever I want. Most will say that God wants everyone to be nice play fair, be kind, 
or, t- or even take up some kind of cause. No, God requires absolute holiness from each and every one of us. God's standard is 100% moral and righteous perfection. And anything less than that falls short of the glory of God. And they need to understand this. And because he created everything, that means he is, we are accountable to him. And we're gonna see that as we move on. They need to understand the truth about God. But number two, they need to be convinced the truth of humanity, of who we are. They need to know who God is, but in comparison to God, they need to know who we are. They need to know who we are. And Paul, from Romans chapter 118 all the way through chapter three, verse 20, he takes great lengths to show what humanity is all about. He takes great lengths to show us our condition before God. We, are, we were created in God's image. Part of that means that we were created to rule the earth under him and under his authority, showing his care for creation, cultivating it, and, and enjoying creation. And by the way, we were created to enjoy creation. We certainly were in a sense, we were his on-site managers, his, his, uh, his foremen, if you will, all in pure and a righteous relationship with him. And we were to live in a way that pleases him. And we were to rule the earth and cultivate the earth and care for the earth in a way that pleases him. And God's way of living, God's commands are basically summarized in two basic commands that we find in Mark chapter 12 and in the other parallels, and that is this. You are to love God perfectly, and you are to love others completely. Essentially, love God completely and love others perfectly. I got those backwards, but you get the point. Can you think of a better way to live than that? To love God perfectly? And to love others completely? I mean, how would that revolutionize your marriage? How would that revolutionize your work environment? How would that revolutionize, I mean, just all of your relationships if you love God perfectly and you loved others completely? I mean, can you imagine a better way to live than that? Well, we sure thought we could. We sure thought we could. Because here's the thing. The bottom line is, the truth about humanity is that every single one of us in our natural state have rejected God. Active rejection. And this is what the scriptures call sin. When most Christians, even Christians, when we think about sin, they think of it as nothing more than just breaking some arbitrary rules. I mean, I mean was really eating an apple really that, that bad? I mean, if, I mean, I mean, doesn't that just sound arbitrary to us? Doesn't that just sound like kind of, kind of nitpicky? And boy, we all love people who are nitpicky, don't we? Aren't they just the funnest people to be around? And so, and so if, why would God be like that? I mean, it was just a piece of fruit. Actually, it was a lot more than that because Adam and Eve and Everyone after them rejected God's rule. We rejected him. 
Romans chapter one, verse 21, as you work down, it says that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. God is deserving of all honor. He's deserving of all worship. He's deserving of all thanksgiving. And yet we chose to reject him. We chose to walk away from him. We chose to say, shake our fist at God and say, you're not gonna rule over, the, over me. I can do better than you can. And I'm just gonna run my own life. Romans 1 verse 25, it says, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature, some aspect of creation. We worship and serve some aspect of creation rather than worshiping the creator. And then we disobey him. We break his law. Things that are in place for our good and his glory, we spit on them, and then we do what is right in our own eyes. And beloved, we need to understand that we disobey God because we have already rejected him. Every lost person is, is actively disobeying God because they have already actively rejected him. Even if they claim otherwise, the fruit gives the story. We disobey God. We have committed high treason against our king. We have essentially taken the crown off of his head and we have put it on our own head, and we have said, God, we do not want to serve you. So the bottom line is that God says we are to love him perfectly, and we say, no, we're not gonna do that. God says we are to love others completely, and we say, no, we're not gonna do that. In fact, if you look on down in verses 28 and 30, this works itself out in all manners of unrighteousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, heartless, ruthless, the list goes on and on. It's not a pretty picture. And what Paul begins to do throughout, through chapter one and chapter two, he begins to indict every single person who has ever lived. I think it was Tertullian who said that there are two thieves, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, there are two thieves that will rob you of the gospel. And the first one is lawlessness. And we see that in Romans chapter one how lawlessness will rob us of the gospel, that, that some Christians will take the, the idea of grace and they will use that as a means to live however they want and abuse and test God in that way. But the other thief is the moral person, the moralist, the one who has everything right on the outside. And Paul talks about him in Romans 2 and Romans 3. Lawlessness and lawfulness, and Paul condemns both of them, and he sums it up in Romans chapter three, beginning in verses nine and following. He said, what then, are the Jews any better off? Not at all. We charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Watch this, we reject God. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. So we reject God. And number two, we don't love others. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of aspers in their, under their lips. Mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined and misery in the way of peace they have not known. A simple summary of it all, there is no fear of God in their eyes. It's not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture. But that is who we are in our natural state. And if that's not bad enough, there's also another truth we need to understand about humanity and that is this, is that we will answer to God. God created every person and he will hold every person accountable for their rejection and their disobedience to him. Every single person is accountable to God for their sin. And you may not like this, but the truth is, is that if God created us, we, then he has patent rights over us and we are responsible for how we live and how we choose to respond to God. We are responsible for the sins that we commit. James 1 says that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. If God is a source of every good and perfect gift, then that means to reject him means to cut yourself off from everything that is good and everything that is perfect. God's penalty for rebellion is death and judgment. This means eternity without God. This means eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. Not a lot of preaching about hell today. It's offensive. It, it, it causes us to kind of wince in our sensibilities but it is a place that the Bible describes and it is a place that the Bible warns about and it is a place that we need to warn others about because to cut yourself off from the source of every good and perfect gift is to, is to fall away from a death and judgment that is completely and totally absent of his grace and beloved, you want nothing to do with that. It is a place of eternal torment it is a place of damnation. It is a place of always dying, never dead. It is a terrible, terrifying, scary thing. But this is what holiness demands. This is what righteousness requires. And beloved, in truth, we all want justice, don't we? We all want justice. We all want righteousness. I mean, do you really want to live in a world where there is no justice? Do you really want to live in a world that, that means might equals right? Do you really want that? None of us want that. When you are wronged, you want justice. And when God's holy and righteous character demands justice, he demands that sin must be punished. And when you are eternally guilty, you must pay an eternal price. I've given this illustration before that if, uh, that if John were to come up and slap me in the face, I mean, at the most, you know, some of the deacons might escort him out. I hope they would. They might join in. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, 
But I mean, nothing's really gonna happen to him. I mean, at most, he might get a little slap on the wrist or something like that. Really nothing. But if I went into the White House and I slapped the president on the face, or at least tried to, I'd go to prison. Why? Because the level of your guilt is directly proportionate to the dignity and the worth of the person you've offended. Just like, you know, you scratch my car, no big deal. Plenty of people have. You scratch a priceless 1970 Ferrari, that's a problem, right? That's, that, that's a felony because that car is so much, more, so much worth more than my car is. John comes up and slaps me in the face. I'm a nobody, nobody cares. But I walk up and I slap the president of the United States in the face. I go to prison because he has so, I'm a nobody. He has, he is the most powerful man in the world. He has dignity and respect. And beloved, when you have sinned against a God who is of infinite worth, who is of infinite dignity, then you are infinitely guilty and you will pay an infinite price. Eternal life in hell. Always dying, never dead. It's horrible. And it sounds and it sounds rough. And it is and it is. But because God loved us, he made another way. He made another way. And that's the third essential truth that someone needs to understand. They need to understand the truth about God and his holiness. They need to understand the truth about humanity. And they need to understand the truth about Jesus Christ. That because God loved us, he made another way for us. He performed a miracle for us. Every aspect of Jesus's life and ministry is miraculous. A, a miracle. God did not leave us in our misery. He did not leave us to our natural and deserved state because he loves us. He did something to, say, to save us. In fact, look in verse 21. And if you mark in your Bible, if you underline your, in your Bible, please mark down, underline these precious words, words that I think are the most precious words in all the English Bible when Paul begins verse 21 by saying, but now... But now that we are all condemned, we are all worthy of death, we are all worthy of God's justice, we are all worthy of his penalty, but now God has made another way. God has performed an incredible miracle. The righteousness of God has appeared. It has been manifested. How? Not in the law. But through Jesus Christ, how did God show forth his righteousness? Number one, because Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's son. He is Christ as God himself. Jesus is not God's son in the sense of some pagan understanding like Zeus and Hercules or it's not borrowed from the Roman Caesars. No, Jesus being God's son means that he shares the exact nature of God. He is God himself, the divine second person 
of the Trinity. He left his glorious home in heaven, sharing the glory with the Father. And he came to live on earth as a human and in every aspect, just like us, except for sin. And Jesus always lived completely under God's rule. He loved God perfectly. He never rebelled against his father. He loved others completely. He always obeyed God's law. He always did what God said. Jesus Christ lived and he earned the righteousness that you and I need. You wanna go to heaven, you need to be as righteous as God is. You wanna have a shot at the kingdom of God then you're gonna have to be just as holy as God is. Perfect from the day of your birth to the day of your death. In fact, I'd even say from the day of your conception to the day of your death, you better be as holy as God is or you're not going. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, he lived in absolute perfection, absolute holiness, absolute dependence upon God. And then he died as our substitute. Jesus died as our substitute. Look at Romans 3.25. When I am sitting on an ordination council, I always make the candidate read these verses and then I always make him uh, define each and every one of these salvation words. And quite frankly, if they can't do it, they don't get my vote for ordination. Here's what it says. I won't read it all, but it says that that the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And watch this, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, in other words, he is the satisfaction for God's eternal wrath. He is the satisfaction. He took our place on the cross. He took it all. He faced God's wrath on the cross. He was sacrificed for us like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He died for us so that we may be forgiven, that we may be accepted, and we may be embraced by God. The eternal debt that you and I deserve, that you and I had, he paid for us on the cross of Calvary. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for our sins. And by the way, notice he only has to suffer once. He doesn't have to suffer on a weekly basis. He only has to suffer once. He suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You might also just jot down 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died as our substitute. He paid the eternal debt on the cross and now he rose as our savior. He rose as our savior. Christ died for our sins, but it doesn't stop there, beloved. On the third day after he was crucified, Jesus rose from the grave and was seen by many witnesses, the apostles and the church because Christ's death was sufficient to cover all of our sins. He rose from the, from the dead to prove that he is everything that he said and that he accomplished everything that he claimed. 
Christ is God's new king. He is now sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father and he offers forgiveness and new life to all who may place their faith in total dependence upon him. In fact, look at Romans 4, 25. Romans 4, 24, it says, it will be counted, faith will be counted to us who believe, righteousness, excuse me, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Watch this. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I mean, just the miracle of that, the provision of that. Just the amazing gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. He is God's son. He died as our substitute. He rose as our savior. And so with that, we need to convince unbelievers the truth about God. We need to convince them the truth about humanity. We need to convince them about the truth about Christ. And finally, we need to convince them to respond. We need to convince them to respond. Christ has done everything that is required for our forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. And he now offers himself to each and every one of you and each and every one of us as a rescue from his own wrath. As a rescue from his own judgment. And in the church, we have a name for that rescuer. We call him our savior. He is our Lord and our Savior. He has given everything for us. He has done all the work. Every other religion, beloved, says do. You must do. You must do. Christ says done. He has done all the work. And all there is left is for us to respond to his amazing grace. So how must we respond? Two words that Christ uses. And by the way, we should use the biblical terminology here, not cliches or anything like that. We should use the biblical terminology. Christ says, number one, we must repent. We must repent. A lot of gospel presentations today leave this out. But it's the first thing that Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand we must turn away from our self-rule. We must submit to Christ as our new king. We must turn away from our self-driven effort, the, the, the lawlessness from Romans 1, the, the legalism and moralism from Romans 2 and 3. We need to turn away from trusting in all of that and instead trust in Christ alone, repent from our sins and our self-efforts of self-rule. Turn away from all of those things, our self-love. Turn away from our rebellion and acknowledge that Christ is Lord. Remember last week we told you that Christ is Lord whether you acknowledge him or not. That's why I don't like saying something like, like making Jesus your Lord. And, 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 and I, I mean, I'm not gonna fight over it. I mean, I understand what they're saying. I'm not gonna get caught up in that. But beloved, you don't make Jesus anything. Jesus is Lord. You either submit to him or you don't. That's all there is. We either acknowledge him or we don't. 
And so in repentance, we are acknowledging that I am no longer my Lord and Savior, Christ is. And I'm taking that crown that I've robbed from his head. I'm taking it off and I'm putting it back on him. And I am dutifully and wonderfully and gratefully, worshipfully bowing down at the feet of King Jesus. Confessing my sin. Asking for mercy and believing on him. Repent and believe. We must rely on Christ and his work alone. No idea of merging our works with his. In fact, look at Romans 3, 27, 28. What becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Law of works? No. But by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It does not get clearer than that. We are turning to Christ from our sins. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. I actually found a quarter this morning on my counter. I don't know which of my kids put it there. But now it's mine. But when I look at this coin and heads is facing you and I turn it around to face me. That's repenting. It's repenting. It's turning from you, turning to me. The process of turning from you is repentance. The process of turning to me is belief. It is faith. But you see, it's the same, it's the same motion, right? You probably can't see that because the quarter is really small. But it's the same thing. Forsaking all, I trust him. For those who recognize that their situation is hopeless, there is a lifeline, there is a rescue. The one who is ready to save you from all the wrath you deserve, it is Jesus Christ. He is abounding in love, strong to save, ready and willing to forgive everything we've ever done. These are the truths that they must know. Now, you don't have to take as long to explain them as I did. If you got three minutes, take three minutes. If you got an hour, take an hour. If you've got three weeks, take three weeks. Expect that there's gonna be some back and forth. That's okay. But these are the four truths that are essential to the gospel. This is what someone must believe you know, Stefan, talking about worldviews and such, it said that there's four questions that when you get the answer to these four questions that you can pretty much peg anyone's worldview. And they are, number one, where do I come from? Number two, what is wrong in the world? Number three, what is the solution to the problem? And number four, where am I going? Is that right? And you look at these four questions, beloved, the, the gospel answers all four of them. Where did I come from? That's the truth about God. What is wrong in the world? That is the truth about humanity. What is the solution to the problem? That's the, that's the truth about Christ. And where am I going? That's the truth about our needed response. Beloved, the gospel is not just something you tag onto 
what you already hold to. It's not just something you put kind of on the back burner. It's not just something you add to your worldview. Beloved, the gospel turns your world upside down. Or better yet, the gospel turns your world right side up. The gospel changes everything. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the gospel, if you have any questions about any aspect of what we've talked about, I would love to talk to you. Brother Stefan would love to talk to you. John, Brother Roy. If you're a lady, you can talk to any one of our ladies. Miss Merlan, others that are here, Roxanne, others. Miss uh, Melissa, Miss Vanita, we would love. And, I, and there's so many others that I could name, both men and women. And beloved, if you're here and you have any questions about any aspect of this, I would love to talk to you. I'm gonna ask our musicians to go ahead and come forward. I'm gonna ask you to stand. I'm just gonna ask every head bowed, every eye closed. And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know the gospel, you have not submitted to Christ as Lord, you have not trusted him in full forgiveness of your sins, if you're here this morning and you're still but trying to be saved by whatever culture you belong to or, or whatever self-driven efforts you're using, whatever it is, I would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for these that have come. And Lord, if there is one who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that we are being faithful to your gospel, that we are calling and proclaiming your gospel to the ones that we have chosen. And Lord, for the ones that are praying for opportunities, I pray that you would give it to them. And Lord, we pray most of all that you will be glorified because you give the grace. Therefore, you get the glory. And I pray by your grace, someone would come forward today to know you. Someone would come forward to say, I'm gonna share this message. Whatever their need is, I pray that you would do business with us this morning. I'm just gonna ask you to keep your head bowed as the musicians play and I'm just gonna ask you to kind of reflect on what all we've said.